Hello and welcome to the Ambassador Labs podcast, where we explore all things about cloud-native platforms, developer control planes, and developer experience. I'm your host, Daniel Bryant, head of DevRel here at Ambassador Labs, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Kelsey Hightower, a well-known technical leader within the cloud-native ecosystem, an author, mentor, and all-around awesome individual. Join us for a fantastic discussion covering topics such as securing the software supply chain, empathetic engineering, and the benefits and challenges of a centralizing infrastructure. And remember, if you want to dive deeper into the motivations for and benefits of a cloud-native developer control plane, or are new to Kubernetes and want to learn more in our free Kubernetes Developer Learning Center, please visit getambassador.io to learn more. So welcome, Kelsey. Many thanks for joining us today. I'm sure many folks will know who you are, and we've done introductions, I think, in past podcasts. Could you start then by sharing perhaps what is most exciting for you in the tech space at the moment, or perhaps something you're working on that's super exciting? Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time in the security space. I think the secure supply chain is getting a lot of attention these days. So for those unfamiliar, this is about reproducible builds, bill of materials. So what's inside of your software, all of the dependencies, the transient dependencies. I think the industry is now mandating a little bit more maturity about what we're building and what we're shipping and being able to go back and prove what's inside of the software that we are building. So that's where I'm spending a lot of time. S3C is Salsa framework is something Google put out not too long ago mm-hmm. as, a, as a standard to try to address all of these attack vectors starting from the source code that you bring into your projects, all the way to deploy time guarantees and everything in between. Very nice, guys. Very nice. So I'm definitely hearing like in relation to platforms, we're going to dive into a bit more in a moment. The whole shift left things become a big thing recently, right? It's been well, arguably for quite some time. But is your pitch at the moment that security needs to be baked in like day zero, really, and then all the way through to day one, day two and beyond? Yeah, I think Traditionally, you know, we try to use things like scanning tools, you know, things once the code is committed, we try to do a little due diligence there. But I think what yeah. we're starting to learn, and I think shift left is an okay way to think about it. So for those unfamiliar with shifting left, you're trying to, you know, provide more tools closer to the developer away from the platform. So shifting left towards the developer. But the truth is, it's going to take everyone in the pipeline. So if you're a developer, only you know what dependencies you actually need. And in many cases, only you can resolve uh, those dependencies if they're proven to have some either security issue or there's a problem that violates your company policy, right? We're not just talking about Mm -hmm. software bugs anymore. We're talking about sovereignty issues, right? Maybe your country doesn't allow a dependency to be written by someone in a different country. So these are things where if you give the information to the de- developer earlier in the process, then the developer has an opportunity to say, well, I'll switch that library out for another library that does meet my company security policies. Mm, fascinating, Kelsey, fascinating. And it's definitely something I'm, I'm keen to dive into a bit more in a moment is where does the responsibility cross over, right? Because we've got this kind of dev persona, ops persona slash platform, and then in the middle, increasingly like SRE, right? As in, and where does the responsibility lie, do you think, for 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 the security like of dependencies, for example? Well, if you think about food, for example, what does the responsibility lie, right? So if you're, if you're a baker and you bake a cake and you put uh, some ingredients inside of the cake that make people sick, then you're going to also be responsible for what you put into the cake. Now, if you ship that cake to a grocery store to be sold and it gets contaminated on the way, then the person driving the delivery truck 
or the delivery company can be held accountable for allowing other ingredients to pollute or contaminate the cake in transport. And then if you're the person selling the cake and you allow something to go wrong, either you allow that cake to sit longer than its expiration date. Yeah. And that makes people sick. So everyone's accountable here. I think what we're doing now is giving people and being very clear about what you can do at every step of the way. So if you're the software developer, well, you're going to have to have some responsibility on the ingredients that go into it. And we're going to ask mm -hmm. you more questions around, do you really need that additional library that has 50 transient dependencies? Is there a better library that doesn't have any transient dependencies that has only the functionality you need? So we just need everyone to be aware of their responsibility in the mm -hmm. pipeline. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make that whole process more transparent by having things like the SBOM, Software Bill of Materials. Yeah, yeah that says, this is what's inside of this. And if you're the developer and you look at that report and you say, wow, I put that in there and that isn't the right ingredient for this particular software application. Yeah, very nice, Cassie, very nice. And that sort of comes full circle to the reason I reached out to you is I put a, a tweet of yours from February 2019, it was, only three years, at a DevX Days presentation I did at KubeCon. And you said the delta between Kubernetes and a developer-friendly PaaS is where the next level of value is and where things tend to get opinionated, a requirement for reliable end-to-end -end workflows. And if I'm understanding correctly, this is in, would include, for example, security, right? Workflows in the notion of you're responsible for that chain of value, right, from code shipping and running is that what I'm understanding correctly yeah I mean it's always been the case that none of this stuff virtual machines bare metal machines Linux Solaris now kubernetes none of these things were developer oriented these were infrastructure mm -hmm. and yeah yeah we've just been leaking them to the developers right we gave them SSH we gave them bash shells we gave them system D we gave them all of these things that allow you to do pretty much anything you want. I think what that tweet was resembling is that Kubernetes gives you more infrastructure, uh, better APIs, but I think at the end of the day, it's still a last mile technology. So what a developer needs to be successful is something that they can trust as a, as a deployment target. So ideally I'm building my code. I'm making sure that it's packaged correctly. All of my dependencies are in there in order for it to run. But then how it gets deployed, I just need something that I can trust that if I give you my application and a bit of configuration to say, I need three of these across the United States of America, your platform should be able to do that. And, and the fact is Kubernetes doesn't necessarily by itself give you the tools to just articulate that requirement without gluing a bunch of things on top. 100%, Kelsey, 100%. And like to use this sort of off-use analogy, any insight into why we haven't got our Heroku for Kubernetes yet? And the reason I mentioned Heroku as well, because I used to love like build packs, right? And we're seeing now like cloud native build packs. You can do things like SBOMs, software building materials in the build packs. But but taking a step back, as in the bigger picture, do you think there will be a Heroku for Kubernetes? And, and if so, is it on the horizon? If there was a Heroku from Kubernetes, you wouldn't want to use it anyway. <laughs> it, it, everyone keeps asking for simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. But it's the people who make this all complex. If everyone would just write in the same programming language, using the exact <laughs> same frameworks, we wouldn't have to deal with any of this. So it's not yeah. about one individual's desire for simplicity. You have to account for the tens of millions of developers and organizations that just want to do whatever they want. 
in any language that they want in any framework what they want and so since you have all of this permutations of what people want to do trying to build a single system that accounts for that is impossible so yes you can have mm -hmm. a heroku but i don't think it's going to be a sustainable business model because the subset of people who can use that for all of their compute needs is very small and so what we've seen and we've seen this from history if you come up with a simple platform, it will definitely do a good job at simple use cases. The minute you have a large organization need to use a second platform or a third platform, and anytime you introduce something like Kubernetes in the mix, we know that Kubernetes can do what Heroku can do. But we know Heroku cannot do what Kubernetes can do. So if you're stuck using both, more than likely that organization is gonna have pressure to consolidate. So all the stuff that was yeah. running in Heroku will end up running in Kubernetes. So I think what we need to see now is something as flexible in terms of its ability to run a, a range of workloads with the mm -hmm. simplicity or you know flexibility of the Kubernetes style API. I think that is on the horizon. And you know things like Cloud Run, we saw that yeah, nice. Azure just shipped their own container runtime mm. built around Kubernetes. Yeah. I think that's when we're going to get there. I don't think Heroku style PaaS will be it. I think it's going to be something in this kind of CAS container as a service platform. Ah, very nice. That's riffing off the conversation I saw you had with Joe at um, the Plumi Cloud Engineering Summit. And you talked a lot about the Kubernetes resource model, the API, the model, the reconciliation. Do you think that's where the magic is at the moment in terms of like using those APIs, implementing those APIs, implementing the model, the workflows. Doesn't matter whether it's uh, CAS or PaaS or something like that. Is the Kubernetes resource model going to be at the core of all this? So going back to Promise Theory, Mark Burris, you know, CF Engine, Puppet, Chef, Ansible. Yeah. That Promise Theory is that infrastructure is hard. You can't just run a script and assume everything is going to get right the first time you run that script. Load balancers take time to update. Security credentials take time to propagate. Logs take time to collect. It, it just takes a while. So the only thing you can do is attempt to describe what you want. I want this application. I want three copies of this app with this much memory and this much CPU. And I want it to be behind a load balancer reachable from this region, right? That's, that's the developer's intent. So what is the best way to capture that? So our industry spent 15, to 30 years scripting this out. You would mm -hmm. run the script, and even if it worked, if a machine were to go down or a load balancer were to go down, the script would have to be run again, and it probably wouldn't work again because the script assumed all of those things were up during the script's runtime. And if something goes down, well, that script isn't continuously running, so therefore, you're just down. The mm -hmm. promise theory says, look, you need to make a promise and then the machinery in the background should be running 24 seven to try to keep the promise to be true. And so when we talk about the KRM, the Kubernetes model, it's not about Kubernetes. I know a lot of people get stuck on, oh my God, he said <laughs> Kubernetes. Let's stop yeah. thinking and say Kubernetes is not as good as Heroku. Like who cares? These are implementation details. The mm. Kubernetes resource model can be used independently of a container cluster. That's the first thing you have to yeah. reason about in order to understand what I'm going to say next. Now, promise theory. We need a way to make a promise. Whether you like YAML or not, it just doesn't matter. As a human being, you need to ask for what you want the infrastructure to do. 
it can be XML, it can be JSON, it can be a text file. The whole world can sort it out. There's many spoken languages too. So mm -hmm. humans have to articulate their desire to the infrastructure. And today we have the Kubernetes resource model, which is very much a REST-like interface that says, here is a resource type, here is a schema, and mm -hmm. based on the schema, here's what it can do. And it has this other unique property that I think is the very first in the promise theory evolution of these kind of tools, which is the status field. And so in mm -hmm. order to break this down, when you take the KRM and you want to describe a container being deployed, well, now you can say, I want a deployment object with three copies, and I would like it to be in this cluster. Great. You can submit that promise or this ask. And then what happens is all the controllers in Kubernetes will do whatever it takes to keep that true. So if two mm -hmm. of your five nodes goes down, well, the controllers will move your containers to something that's already running to hold the promise and update the status field. So given that, I think you can apply this logic. The upbound and cross-plane people are doing this. Shippa are doing this. Cloud Run is doing this. So now I can describe any type of infrastructure, whether it's networking, SSL certificates, you name it with the same type of model, the KRM. So this is where I think having something where a user can write down what they want, submit it to a control plane, which can preserve the state, and then have actuation loops behind the scenes converge and keep it true. It's just the evolution of this whole. Well said, Kelsey. Well said. Big fan of like cross planes work as well. I'm playing around with that, and yeah, very interesting. You mentioned control planes there. Super interested about that. What do you think the control planes will look like? Because I saw you tweeting about the Azure Container apps. I know you're a big fan of Cloud Run as well. Would the control plane, the like maybe command line tools that I would use for that, differ from something like cross plane if I was using both of them? Yeah. So a control plane. So you know, you mentioned cross-plane. Cross-plane is a control plane like framework, almost like an SDK, if you will. So you can design your own custom control planes based on the KRM. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of a control plane, number one, typically is to store the state that you want. And it also hosts the actuation engines to make it true. And then you can do other things in the control plane, like limit who can do these things. So RBAC control, you can do things like billing, chargeback, logging. So the control plane's idea is that you can centralize a lot of these operations. So if you have a command line tool, instead of the command line tool doing all the work, like today's version of Terraform, right? Mm -hmm. It's a control plane and the data plane all in one. So it mm -hmm. tries to call all of the APIs and make things happen. But if you turn it off, that's it. If you close your laptop, the command line tool, which is also the control plane, stops. And so no more promises can be kept until you turn it back on. So in modern day control planes, like you see in the cloud, right? When you go to any cloud provider, you're typically interacting with two things, the UI and the control plane. Most people confuse mm. the two, right? They bundle the Good UI point. with the control plane, but they're two separate things under the covers. And they're just clients, right? The UI is a client in your web browser, and then the command line tool is a client on your command prompt. But this control plane concept, I think, is where things take off for all sorts of infrastructure platforms. You now have a central place to hold state, converge it, and keep it true over time. And Kubernetes just happens to be what we consider a universal control plane. Mm, interesting. That's very interesting. Do you think GitOps 
steps in that situation would almost be like a protocol. Like so the control plane would hold the state, but something you mentioned like the actuators, is that where something like GitOps would, would play into as, as a pattern for reconciling declared state and actual state somewhere? Yeah, I think GitOps became a vacuum that started sucking in so many concepts that I don't know <laughs> yeah, if GitOps actually means as much to most people anymore. But I think at the very top of the GitOps concept, this idea that this state can be version controlled. That's mm, like the big yeah. advantage here is to say like, look, all of these applications can now be represented by this artifact. Let's just call it YAML files to keep it simple. And so now that we yep. can model our intent, we can store it somewhere, we can review it, we can branch it, we can diff it now. This is great. And so once you have that in play, you can now do releases, right? I can now say, hey, now that I have all of this infrastructure articulated and stored in version control, I can now cut a release. So I can now tag this infrastructure repository. It could be as big or small as you want. Some companies will attempt to model all of their environments, all their applications in one big repository, you could do that. Uh, some teams will just model their application that they're responsible for in their own repository. But either way, you now have the way to version control and cut a release. Once you cut a release, there are different ways of deploying that release. So some GitOps implementations and practices, there's going to be another control loop that will simply watch these Git repositories and if you tag something, it will then deploy that tag into the cluster and it will just keep this control loop going. So anytime you mm. release something, it will pull it in and apply those changes. And this only works because Kubernetes knows how to merge these configurations and resolve itself to the new state. So you don't have to run a bunch of scripts. So this is why people talk about it being GitOps because Git tends to be where things are uh, collaborated on and eventually actuated on by the controllers running in the target control plane. Very interesting, Kazi. Yeah, thanks. That's that's great explanation of why well, I was thinking around some of the GitOps challenges there. So I wanted to pivot a moment now, uh, can sort of the, the final bit of the podcast, and talk a little bit about empathetic engineering. I saw you talk about this again at the Plumi Cloud Engineering Summit. Super interesting. Definitely sort of big fan of this in general. I believe it came out of your piloting the Google customer empathy sessions. Is that right? Yeah, it's something where I think a lot of companies have experience with what, what they call like a dog food program, you know, or a hackathon yeah. where you get together and you use your own product. I decided to call it empathetic engineering as a discipline. And the goal is to make it closer to something like SRE. Right? SRE is a philosophy towards reliability. Some companies will say operational stuff, but whatever you have this mentality around what does it mean to have empathy during the entire life cycle of an engineering process. And so it was born from the early days of Kubernetes, getting the Google's Kubernetes engineering team together to use the product the way our customers were, but also the results were not just better products. We got a lot of improvements from those things but also a person who now approaches software design with empathy, like for the user. What would the user do with this software? And if they can't do that, then I need to change the software. And I thought the best approach was to get hands-on and fill it for yourself. Yeah, totally makes sense, totally makes sense. So is it 
a human skill as much as a technical skill, right? As I imagine like a, a, as a back-end engineer, I mainly used to talk, you know, comfortable talking about code and, and ops and so forth. Do I have to learn new things to be able to, to do empathetic engineering? Yeah, I think in the in software engineering, for at least the 20 years of my career, you could get very far without actually being really good at the human stuff. You didn't have to actually yeah. be good at inspiring people. You know, there's this kind of legend of the grumpy system administrator, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you could get yeah, very totally. far without customer service skills. You can get very far without even using your own product. And it just doesn't mm. work anymore because there are companies who actually do care about their users and their customers to the point where there are also their own users and customers. And you've felt an application where it's like, wow, someone have, must have used this before. Everything yeah. seems to be in the right place. It feels intuitive. You feel like you can accomplish most tasks without much friction. And then there's software where it feels like there must be no one really using this thing. It's all over the place. <laughs> it feels like it's a torture to do anything. And so I think what's changing now is given that we have nice mobile experiences, we have so many delightful experiences yeah. where companies that don't have that, they're feeling the pressure. Uh, so I just think it's becoming way more important. So it is a set of human skills. And again, if you look at most job letters in IT, there is not a lot of emphasis on having great customer service, being empathetic, all of the words that we used to classify as soft skills, even though they're hard to do. Mm, yeah, yeah. And have you got any advice, Kelsey, for folks, maybe it's courses, books, just, you know, things to practice. If folks are listening and they're, you know, they want to become more empathetic as an engineer, how would they go about best doing that? At, at some point, we got to realize that engineering, writing code is the last part of the process. It's the last mm. phase. Deciding what to build is where a lot of the work should be. And so how do you learn what to build? And so you might be an engineer listening to this and say, well, I'll just do whatever my product manager tells me, right? <laughs> or whatever yeah. the story from the agile process tells me, and I'll just code it up that way. QA will tell me if it's any good, and I will go on to the next feature. I mean, you could probably still get really far with that. But I think mm. the other way is to say, wow, you know, can I be part of the UX process to see how this should actually feel? Should I walk through the paper prototype and ask questions? Should I watch what customers are currently doing and ask myself, how would I do the same thing different? I think investing, whether if you spend a bunch of time learning new programming languages, you could also spend time thinking about psychology, how people behave, how would they want to behave, different countries have different needs, different groups yeah. have different needs. You can also study those things. And if you go and study those things, you might say, hmm, if we're building this software for everyone, well, I know from my previous studies that this will not work for everyone, right? And we've seen this things like, you know, you go into the bathroom at the airport and they have these automatic dryers that kick on once you put your hand underneath. But some people have designed those things where they can only recognize certain skin tones. So some people would say that might be a lack of empathy because maybe they didn't have enough people that with diverse skin tones to test it. Maybe no one thought about mentioning that during the whole design process. So that's what I mean by this. So engineering, writing code is the last step of the process. And if you get really good at the human side of it, I think you'll end up writing much better software at the end. 
Yeah, love it, Kirsty, love it. So the final question related to that is uh, I, I tweeted a quote from the Cloud Engineering Summit, which got a, little, a fair bit of traction, and I'd love to get your sort of insight into it. The quote was, with building applications or platforms, it's often not not invented here it's more not understood here and therefore folks will build their own thing rather than use components or frameworks that are existing out there do you think this kind of wraps up with the empathy as well in terms of understanding is, is a core part of empathy right yeah i think i think understanding you know the needs but this discovery problem i mean just to be very honest think about it most people do not get enough time to research go to work we need this feature done by friday and to be honest, most things that we're asking people to build, they've never built before. They've never done it Good before. Point. And so mm -hmm. we're just saying, look, you got a day to go in Google and find what you can. And if you can't find it in a day, then time's ticking. You just have to mm -hmm. go off and just throw something together that seems like it's going to work. And often within a small team or even at a large company in a small department, you don't have enough time for even peer review. And maybe your peers yeah. don't get time to research. So what ends up happening is that you can go along for years creating something that you think needed to be created only to go to a conference and say, oh, yeah, that's an existing thing. You just reinvented yeah. TCP IP. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. We just needed a network protocol. It's like, yeah, we've needed network protocols for 40, 50 years. You've just <laughs> literally reinvented a thing. And it's not because they were malicious, it's just they, they probably just didn't know. So I think we need mm -hmm. to have a lot more time for researching to make sure that we know what's available in the world. I'm not saying you gotta go use everything that's available, but just being aware will help you make a more informed decision. Great thinking points, Cassie, great thinking points. So final thing, uh, anything that you wanna share with the listeners at all, uh, something to check out, something interesting you're, you're mulling on or a final takeaway thought? Yeah, I think honestly, you know, the time has come where software is making another step towards maturity. And so this secure software supply chain stuff is serious. I think what this means for you as a developer is that just importing random libraries from GitHub is no longer going to be acceptable in our industry in a short order of time. And you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about here, right? You go find a thing, it has lots of stars, you add the import statement yeah. and you do a build. The thing is, we're gonna have to get much better at saying, who wrote this library? Who contributes to this library? And what are its transient dependencies? Because you're now the baker in this equation, pulling in random ingredients that may or may not be good for people on the other side. So I think now is gonna be the time to ask yourself, get educated on what this is all about, get educated about what it means to have this level of software discipline, where we really start paying attention to what's in our software and knowing that we have the power and control and responsibility to make sure that only the things that are necessary to be in there are in there. Perfectly said, Kelsey. I'll make sure to link a bunch of things for folks uh, on the podcast that you want to check out. I know there's plenty at KubeCon, talked around with the S-bomb and other interesting things. But if you've got any links, feel free to share them with me too. That's uh, awesome. Thank you so much, Kelsey. As always, always learn about chatting to you. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me.